in this episode we have navin kishor who is the founder and managing director of seagal books born in calcutta navin kishor received graduation in english literature in 1973 and began working as a theater lighting designer he established seagal books in 1982 a publishing program focusing on drama film art and culture studies Today it also publishes literature including poetry fiction non-fiction and english translations from 25 world languages At present the company has registered divisions in London New York and Calcutta In 1987 Kishore established the Seagal Foundation for the Arts and set up the Seagal School of Publishing in 2012 Kishore is a photographer who has extensively documented female impersonators from Manipuri, Bengali and Punjabi theater practices. Kishore exhibited his work at Chatterjee and Lal in Bombay in the exhibition green room of the Goddess. He was awarded the 2021 Ottawa Award for the promotion of international literature and is the recipient of Gotha Medal. Welcome to our podcast. So nice of you to agree and come out to our podcast. Thank you very much. No, thank you for having me. Okay, so you were interested in theater initially during your school days and college days. Uh, how it led to publishing? Please tell us about it. Yeah, the theater actually happened uh, well, the school is, you know, everybody does theater in school, so that was okay. But the um, I think it was in college that I really tasted blood as it were as far as theater is concerned but I remember I was uh, there was a theater group called the Red Curtain and uh, which was essentially made up of young people from different colleges who had left school started a theater group as the school leavers of a couple of schools and um, they started to do amateur theater but with great uh, quality aesthetic style uh, production values and things and they when i joined them it was you know i was a backstage person my first theater experience was a play called wait until dark where i used to sit behind a refrigerator with a small cassette recorder and every time the blind leading lady opened the fridge I would have to put on the duck, 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 the sound of the machine, and synchronize it with every time she shut it. Um, and at one point in this thriller, which was also a good film, uh, this blind woman is trying to smash all the bulbs because she's going to be attacked by these two people. And I have to synchronize the swinging of her sort of stick to the bulbs and. simulate a crash in a waste paper basket with old bulbs in a, a, a metal um, brass kind of weigh, weighing weighing thing you know smashing it this was my first beginning it sounds too complicated <laughs> <laughs> it was good fun you were you know assisting backstage and then immediately you were plunged into the deep end in the next play which was rosencrantz and guildenstern are dead by tom stoppard and the red curtain was a very democratic setup so they said you design the sets and light i do nothing about it but the british council library was very useful so i used to go and study lighting design books and stuff 
But at that point, I was playing by the rules where I was lighting your face as an actor in 45 degrees. But I was frustrated because I couldn't achieve darkness. You know, it was... So that was a disaster. I made a mess of it, I think. But the next play which I designed, Ibsen's Ghosts, I think I threw the rule book out of the window and I started to light the air around actors. And, you know, in real life, you, you're not lit well. You could go in and out of shadows. Even now you can see, you know, my face has a light from the top and that kind of thing. So I became a lighting design person. And what often happens in India is that Sometimes life makes your hobbies become livelihood. And my father lost his job very early in life. I had to, in college, start to support. And I turned to lighting design and discovered people were willing to pay me. But there was never enough money in theatre. So I started to become what you and I now call event managers. So I presented everybody from Yamini Krishnamurti to Biju Maharaj to to you know, and to jazz festivals and theater and dance. And now all of this fed into the theater and over a 10, 12 year period, there came a moment when we felt the need to document. The word document came into my sort of, you know, uh, lexicon as it were. And um, I turned to a very dear, much older, wiser, scholarly being, Shomik Banerjee, who was then an editor at Oxford University Press. And he used to edit and publish for them people like Girish Kanad and Badal Sarkar and the early plays. They had a series called New Drama in India kind of thing. We, we were together, you know, I was airing my frustration about how the ephemeral nature of a certain kind of theatre activity would disappear because... There was no way of freezing it, you know. And I didn't have the word. So he says, well, publishing. If a publisher devoted to the theatre, the arts, the media, uh, you know, the visual, the cinema, and not worrying about feeding 400 mouths like Oxford, you know, where you cannot survive off the slow-selling niche publishing, you have to do other things. And uh, I like the idea because... I said to him, I didn't have a sense of scale, clearly. So, and I didn't have the money. So I said, uh, well, we have a name. We already exist as Seagull. So Seagull Books, one more bird publisher. And... Um, one more bird publisher. <laughs> that's literally, that's literally how no, it started. I thought you were on... referring to Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Like, no. <laughs> no, unfortunately. No, because the name Seagull actually came, as you may have read or heard, from a rock concert I had done in 72, which was called Seagull Empire. And so, you know, we used to present everything as Seagull. Anyway, so that's literally overnight we decided to start this. And I learned on the job. And I was lucky I fell into the hands of this wonderful editor mentor and founding editor of Seagull, uh, Shabik Banerjee, but also we both fell into the hands of an even more interesting printer, a man called P.K. Ghosh, uh, Prabhat Kumar Ghosh of a legendary letterpress printing house called East End Printers. And, you know, he was a very interesting printer because he would not say yes to a book unless he had read the manuscript, you know. So if uh, you and I as colleagues went to him with a book, he would say, leave it for me, let me read it. 
and or he would then discourage you and say, but I'm so expensive, why do you want to come to me here? And, you know, things like that. Once he accepted your book, this printer would have discussions with you after you had copy edited it and discuss books. He was actually an editorial mind. And I learned, you know, literally, uh, I had no experience. But what I had was a kind of theatrical aesthetic, if you like. When you look back, you can find words for it. And so instinctively, in a publishing culture in India, which was very suspect in the rest of the world, where people always felt we had shoddy binding, terrible lamination, cheap, you know, it's like we couldn't do it. But that was not the case, really, because I found there was good paper available, there was good binders available, there was good everything available. It was intent. If you wanted to do books cheaply for any number of reasons, not always economical, but, you know, it could be other reasons where you felt that you had to price the book low because of, you know, if they were textbooks. But good literature needed to be, you need the touch and feel of, you know, something material. So I instinctively gave this printer, P.K. Ghosh, we stand the best of paper, the best grammage, four cover colors. Those were block made in those days. And he immediately understood that I was, you know, instinctively doing in an environment with the same paper merchants that, say, in Oxford use, the same block makers, I was able to produce better looking books because the intention was there. And I wasn't... As I said, I'd had no sense of scale. And uh, it was, and we had started this company with borrowed money from a bank, literally. And um, we learned very quickly, and I'll jump a little here, where in independent or any publishing, you do not publish one book and then say, I'm going to sell this, then the money that comes in will produce the second book. No. The world and particularly the world of publishing, distribution, book selling, demands that you make your presence felt by consistently bringing out books. Can be two books a year, can be six, can be 60. That's not the issue. The issue is that you as a distributor and you the chain that goes all the way to the bookseller and the book buyer simply wants to know that you're going to keep producing. It's not a fly-by-night thing. Where you do it from, how you do it, it's not, you build up a list or what we used to call a backlist, which is the spine of any good publisher. Because the serious, the nature of the publishing was very serious after all. What were we doing? We were translating from different languages, Telugu or Tamil or Marathi or Bengali or Hindi, into English. Not because we thought everybody would run around performing all these language plays in English, but English was the link language where you, sitting in Hyderabad, could translate something from Manipur because you read it in English and said, I like this, I'll go to the original and translate. So it was in a sense, retrospectively, it took 30 years of this before these books started to become texts. Habib Tanvir, Charan Chol, Tindulkar, Ghasi Ram Kautwal, these are all texts now. So at that moment, it was just the excitement that nobody had done it before. And you did the, you know, so it became... There was a very exciting cinema movement at that time. Satyajit Ray, Adur, Gopalakrishnan, Manal Sen, Shambha, you know, so you were documenting. There was a 10-year period of very rich cinema that you would know. So you started to do the screenplays. 
Um, so that's how the early seagulls started. Yeah, so I don't, I, you know, so that I think sort of answers roughly the very beginnings of how we chose to get into publishing. Probably there are other aspects of it, but there will come a time later where, you know, it took us a long time to build a backlist. And in the backlist, what happens is that you sell small numbers across that and then your economics work out. It's not the success of one book. And we learned very early again on the job that sometimes, let us say, Satyajit Ray's screenplays of the Apu Trilogy could sell 5,000 copies, but maybe uh, Jabbar's threshold could only sell 500. So you learned cross-subsidizing, which is actually a negative word in today's publishing. Today's publishing wants every book to be a profit center. What is known as a profit and loss, a PLN, you know. So editors like you and me, when we are pitching something to our bosses in a publishing environment of a large house, we have to prove. I'm commissioning this book, but I expect to sell this much. This is it. So you need to work that out. It's impossible for anybody because no amount of market search will teach you how eventually that book buyer is going to absorb what you have put out. What you put out, maybe half a dozen or 20 people's excitement in your publishing house, but you don't know that will translate into 2,000 or 20,000 people, right? It's a chance you take. You can't research that truth of readers or emotional truth of readers to be in sync with what you've published. So it's hard to be a profit and loss thing. Even they look at the media, look at the, you know, wonderful Places like, let us take, if I'm in Calcutta, the Anandu Bazaar group that we've always grown up with. They used to have a lovely magazine, a literature magazine called Desh. You know, but then there came a time when that literary magazine had to change its content because it was asked to become a profit center. Whereas there were other magazines and papers around it which were capable of funding it. That's the important thing. Even now, we've kept that principle in Seagull after even for this is the 42nd year where it's always a handful of books that fund a lot of the other books it's cash flow right it's not about every book must make a profit or a loss kind of thing so i don't know if that uh, explains it but the other jump would happen in 2005 when we decided and so something we were informally you and i are talking about which is the the politics of a certain geographical location. So here you are in India for X number of years, maybe over two decades, doing these wonderful books, which everybody's loving. The community of publishers also love you. They don't find you competitive because you're publishing in a very serious niche. So it's not. And so everyone's showing you off to the world, as it were. But even now, after 75 years of independence, the English-speaking West expects Indian publishers to buy the right to sell within our country or our subcontinent, right? Whereas we felt that point when the word globalization hadn't totally lost its meaning, that in a globalized world, we should be anywhere. It doesn't matter. Our location is not important. 
as long as there is courtesy of visibility for your authors and distribution, then why should I just buy rights for India? I can buy rights for the world. I do good-looking books. That was the feeling. And if my money is the same as yours. So we experimented and we set up Seagull Books London Limited. And the whole political twist to that was that you would you registered tax-paying entity based in England. Your location changes. You're no longer in a black hole called Calcutta. So suddenly you're a UK-based company. And suddenly everybody wants to distribute you because you're doing good-looking books. You know? So that was an amusing thing for us, the, that kind of a thing. But we also told ourselves that in the beginning we would be a registered independent tax-paying publishing house, not a branch or anything. Incorporated in Great Britain, and we would deal with the world. We would buy world rights, and we were distributed by the University of Chicago Press. And um, the idea was not to spend money on infrastructure, have staff and offices. The production, in any case, most British publishers are outsourcing to other countries. You know, you're typesetting in Pondicherry or Chennai, <laughs> but you're, so you're publishing Korea or Hong Kong or China. So we said we have infrastructure in Calcutta. That becomes a servicing thing. So, you know, so that experiment is over 500 books old. We own World Rise to this. We are distributed by the University of Chicago Press, uh, 14 years. At that point, the decision, the choice of what the content would be, you're going from a certain Indian theater, cinema, culture studies into something more international on which the Indian end would ride piggyback eventually. But at that point, we were, you know, into translations. We turned to Europe. You have to understand at that point, the world, the English-speaking world, let us say, was not encouraging translated literature. It had disappeared. When I was growing up, it was there in the 70s, late 60s, even early 80s. India was full of it because somebody was doing it. And then later in their wisdom, the American publishing houses or the British ones felt that perhaps translation does not sell enough for them to meet their numbers. So slowly it disappeared. I'm talking the English-speaking world everywhere because the chain effect is if the... You see, after all, how were books getting to India? You have to understand a handful of importers, distributors in Daryaganj and in Calcutta. Old man Rupa, who was a legendary figure who started Rupa, he used to import some of the best books because they were being done so he could choose and he could bring in literature. But when it stopped happening, it was difficult to do that. So I found that when I turned to European literature to translate, when I, I remember it was going to be 100 years of Jean-Paul Sartre and I went to Gallimard and I asked for various Saath volumes, there was great confusion as to why would you want to do this for India? And, um, and this was, it was interesting because um, it took us a while to explain that we wanted world rights of a French writer called Jean-Paul Sartre and that we were going to translate, not sitting in New Delhi at two rupees a word with some commercial translator who does business letters for consulates, but the person who translates Sartre. 
and we went to Chris Turner and we paid in those days 70 pounds per thousand words. That was the rate then set by the UK Translators Association. So you were learning that you had to get the best of everything to get the quality to make a name. And once they were convinced and the first books came out, it opened a floodgate because then you could show they are distributed, they are reaching America, they are reaching New Zealand and they're reaching Australia through Chicago's network. But what was interesting at that moment in time was that when the Americans bought rights from the French or the Germans or the Italians, they would often buy just for the US and Canada. The UK would buy just for the UK. Some of them would buy for the world, but they could never get to India because their pricing didn't work. I was offering them India as a given at a subsidized rate. You know, We were letting the dollar market subsidize the rupee. Right? And I was giving them America and Australia and everything using their own systems of distribution and so on. So that it's, it's not as easy as it sounds, but that's the magic of theater. You make something look like it is very simple, but it is exciting. And um, you have to remember that the nature of independent publishing is precarious worldwide. It's not just Seagull. It's everybody, you know. Um, uh, there are some wonderful independents uh, in this country. Uh, and there are some wonderful independents in the rest of the world that we admire and respect, you know. And um, they all have to be on their toes constantly. Right? It is a tightrope act. You're, you're juggling resources, but you're not giving in into a certain kind of philosophy that says, we actually wish to publish this kind of serious literature, but to make that possible, we have to do 70% of something else. It doesn't work. You know, I think you should rather accept the fact that we are going to do 70% of the what brings in the money and 30% of something else. It's okay. But, you know, you don't fool yourself. Or you have to do what a lot of independents like us do, which is you somehow persist with just like a wish list of what you feel needs to be published, right? Because it needs... You cannot allow the distraction of what you perceive as a popular something that will... No, it, eventually the market has a way of finding its way to you if you build enough pressure. So when you have a corpus of 500, 600, 700, 800, 900 books, over, they get noticed. It takes that kind of patient persistence to be able to get noticed in today's difficult publishing environment. And you also the other thing that is often asked is, you know, are you threatened? In the old days we were asked, are you threatened by the e-book or are you threatened by this? So and I always used to I used to sometimes joke and say, where's the time to be threatened? Or one would say that we like producing the book as an object, but we do it by using the very technology that you claim is threatening us. We do ebooks, it's useful. And we do it not necessarily as a revenue earner so much as a reinvention. You're the author, 
you're alive. We owe it to you to keep your book from disappearing. Because in today's world, the way distribution works, every season, every six months, your book becomes history and something else is replaced. So here you do hardback. A bunch of salespeople from Chicago promoted. Six months later, you, it disappears. You do other hardbacks. Then 18 months later, you bring back this book as a paperback. So they push it again for another six months. You bring in the e-book as simultaneously. Now we're turning our entire list into audiobooks. So you're, what you're doing is what publishers are meant to do. If you're a dead author, it's even more interesting. We handle the estates of Mahashwata Devi and Nabarul Bhattacharya, her son. And we, we keep reinventing. You know, you're doing paperback, hardback, uh, new editions, sometimes new translations, sometimes pairing books together. You're, you know, the whole idea is to keep, you don't want a dead archive of a backlist. You know, you want books that are continuously, and therefore you have to embrace the technology. If the young people are listening to Spotify, put the audiobook on Spotify. It's perfectly all right, you know. It brings them to the book eventually. My next question is a bit lengthy and it uh, includes an embarrassing admission. We started interviewing translators a few months ago, about nine months ago. Tarunava Sinha, then Tess Lewis, Owen Good, and uh, Savad Hussain, Ross Schwartz, Laura Norgard. Their books they have published from one company called Seagull Publishing. And suddenly one fine morning we realized mm -hmm. that it is from our own Calcutta. <laughs> so <laughs> being in Calcutta, right, uh, the environment, mm -hmm. what is the effect uh, you think it had on Seagull's sensibility? Well, it's hard to, you know, you don't consciously set out to, you know, uh, I mean, I think you're living and breathing in a certain environment. I was born and brought up in Calcutta, which uh, was a very open cosmopolitan space. And I often think of the fact that in the late 60s, 70s, throughout, you know, you know, one was in and out of communities. And when I say in and out of communities, I mean homes and festivals and relationships and food and music and dancing and all of that, you know, you were surrounded by Armenians and, you know, uh, Jewish friends and Chinese and Parsis, and, you know, I mean, there was no, I mean, the whole thing was so cosmopolitan, which was a limited word. And much later, ironically, if you want to make a connection, if you're that kind of a person, we're doing 23 world literatures, so our community of publishing, the books on our shelves, remind me of a kind of micro Calcutta of the 70s, right? But for us, there was never, it was always a kind of retrospective method or magic. When you look back, you see a certain logic unfolding, but when you're actually doing it in the thick of it, like this conversation, uh, it cannot be rehearsed because I don't know what you're going to ask me. You don't know where I am going to go. I don't know it either. I'm intuitively trying my best to find you answers. So similarly, when you're working in the arts, 
and culture and and in an environment where you believe and that has changed now you know people are often these days uh, debating uh, what is the role of the publisher does a publisher contribute to the intellectual climate of a nation a city a community there are no easy answers you know how many of us are thinking about it especially post 2014 and 19 what are we really consciously in india thinking about what we're contributing in, in you know to the intellectual climate if you look at the bookshelves you know what are we publishing so it's a tricky thing but when you're actually in the thick of doing it of course the city is very much a part of me i um, you know i used to very casually often repeat and say that for me i could if you threw me anywhere in the world i would survive you know that kind of thing but the truth is that i survived here and that my journey to the rest of the world continues to find its way home to the city you know in the most comfortable kind of way and the city has always been very hospitable and not just to art and culture as it's made out right the the bengali culture the intellectual aura and all of that i think the, it's hospitable every which way people still just drop in i don't have to make an appointment with you in hyderabad i just drop in and you will give me food literally you know in in food in all aspects of it you know to eat to think all of that and it's remained a fairly old fashioned affectionate warm city despite all the changes that as a calcutta i may be upset about you know or exhausted with um it's 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 a less uh, what should i say it's it's yeah it is it's so much a part of you that you almost don't notice it it's an intuitive imbibing right and um, so yes but if if you you know you, you you can't create a chart out of this or an excel sheet of what was imbibed when but yes it continues to give me sustenance you know and uh, uh, including the fact that you you survived here doing theater to start with and then the documenting of theater then the more tangible which is the books because the ephemeral the theater disappears after the opening night and the book remains in a certain way and so on and so forth but to me the learning of the theater there is constantly on a daily basis there is a lesson that i can use in concrete terms in my publishing world because theater teaches you a certain hospitable way of solving problems with very little resources right that's the magic of theater you know you may have a king wearing a golden crown but it's actually not cloth at all it could be just some gold painted wire mesh from chandni chowk you know that you wear it in a certain way so there's a lot of that that's is constantly and it's intuitively crisscrossing you you know the choices you make and, uh, the risks you take but yes the city is very important now how do you think your sensibilities as a reader helped in building seagull books i think the uh, reading helps because as i told you when we 
decided to play first world publisher in 2005 with third world currency as it were in other words go international build an international list i said to you that i turned to europe and i've said this to death often in print and otherwise where i grew up reading european literature you know you may have grown up reading the bible or the gita or the quran to find solutions to your problem i used to turn to the darkest of literature and it just happened to be from different parts of europe which would give me little solace right that i was not alone in my whatever darkness and so on and so forth and um so the reading that made me think that i wanted to go to the french and the germans first which was the initial reaching out before all the other languages and um what was interesting was that reading is like it's this you know when you hold a book for i'll give you a very concrete example of how the detective work happens even in publishing and how it happens in reading i recently some months ago discovered a colored canadian poet called dion brand and my you know there was a book published by my friends in duke university press it was called nomenclature it was 600 pages of poetry and I didn't know whether I was desperately excited or just angry that I hadn't read her before and it had a critical introduction which was equally exciting by a woman called Christina Sharp and I'm saying here are these two people I don't know and I started and I found that Dion Brand had done 20 other books fiction essay poetry 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 and christina sharp had done two others and one new book which has won the national book award in america called ordinary notes and when i re- i started to read them and when i was reading them it led me to other poets that they write about and read about and it started became a chain of things and then you before you do it you'd done about 30 books of different people about as many as nine people and that is exactly how the publishing also happens you begin seagull the international part with something you know which is jean paul sartre paul celan ingeborg bachmann adorno kluger engelsberger arto so you're going to these classics you grew up with some alive some not so alive and then what do you do you don't know what's happening because you don't know the literatures any longer you don't know the languages and so then you turned instinctively i did something which is i turned thankfully to because of my lack of structure to a bunch of translators like tess or chris and i said what are you reading and then they started to discover younger exciting writing for me and i started to trust them and blindly started to publish them so it became a circle of trust with the translators watching this happening certain publishers in france and italy german figured out this is what we need to find from our archives to this man's house so it grew it's not a one man show right so it it is these circles of trust that you know they and you see it's like a bookstore if the bookstore owner 
and we have enough traditions of these wonderful bookshop owners in this country too. You have regular customers and you give them books that you find for them. Fine. But there's a certain kind of bookseller who reads and has taste, which he's dying to share with you. He knows these are not the kind of books you buy, but he wants you to read them. And when he shares those new things for you, you get excited because you didn't think he used to stalk them. It's a lot of detective work, which intuitively happens. You go to the footnotes of every book and you find ways of saying, oh, somebody's done this, somebody's quoted this. That sounds like it rings a bell in my head. So it's a process which is very hard to uh, put into a structure. But if you talk about it in a passionate enough way, uh, I think it gets across to a lot of younger people and it kind of grows in that. So the reading is a parallel exercise. You cannot publish and avoid Right? And you cannot publish everything. So you have to celebrate other publishers. This is important to understand. It's not, this is the one wonderful business which is not cutthroat. I'm not trying to steal you away from, you know. It's, it's I mean, of course, authors shift and move and all of that happens. And sometimes you feel heartache. Somebody who published four books moves on to somebody else. Yes, but it isn't like a certain kind of corporate or advertising world where sometimes people are, you know, taken away in a certain kind of way. But um, so we've, at least at the Seagull level, all of us, it's a small team and we've constantly celebrating on our social media, the publishing community. Because it is, after all, a community. And that's important. The cover design of each book. Um, that is something truly special. And uh, the other day, I was going through your website where your catalogs, right? Catalogs. That design too is so beautiful. And uh, you being a photographer. I would say an accomplished uh, visual artist. What kind of effort uh, goes into it? Before a young person called Shunandari Banerjee walked in from her university to be an editor, assistant editor, every single book was designed by me using my photographs and other people's art. And, you know, we were printing in a different technology, blocks for being made. And Offset was just beginning to transition. And I had self-taught myself to design this. And I used to set the insides of every computers, Apple Macintosh had come into it, desktop publishing was happening. But when this young person came, who was also totally untrained, she came in and grew parallelly as an editor. She grew as a translator and she grew as a designer. And I sensed my only role was of letting go, which is that recognizing a very sensitive, a superior sensibility. And when I say sensibility, I mean reading. This was a reading being and therefore could make connections which translated into design. Again, a person who couldn't draw, but who took to computers and a digital technology to create what she calls digital collages. And the design aesthetic not only changed, it kind of grew in stature. 
And when we started Siegel London, we were told by our distributors, oh, the UK books have a certain aesthetic. You need a different cover for the US and you're different. She broke all those rules and said, her covers work. This one cover, one book published simultaneously across the globe works. It works in Japan and New Zealand and Cambodia and everywhere else. There's a kind of something that comes across. So I have no credit here other than letting go after recognizing that this person is doing something special. So it was not at the cost. She was not designing at the cost of any of her other skills. So she's the chief editor and she is also the chief designer and she translates. So that's, and she makes art, which is exhibited and sold and, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so the, the photography, interestingly, and if I may add the writing. So I've been doing photography for, you know, in analog before the advent of the digital for like my theater days, right? But in some strange ways, it was always for myself. It get, you know, I have, for example, we show art and photography, but you cannot show in your own space your own work. Similarly, for almost 12 years now, I write every single day. All of that happened accidentally many years later, like my photography started to get shown and actually sell these last few years uh, because Chatterjee and Lal found their way to me and I found my way to them and they became my gallery. And so what I'm saying is that Till that happened in the public exhibition space, it was all being used along with many other photographers and artists who are part of the Seagull fraternity by Shunandri. These were all used in design. Our other editorial designer colleague, Bishan Samadha's photography is also used. Her own, you know, so it's, as she says, she's like a magpie that takes from here and there and creates something kind of stuff. But yes, all of my recognizing design or appreciating or celebrating design, anybody's, not just ours, has to, I think I'd, I would still connect it to theater, where I would very confidently, even now I feel very good in a nicely, affectionately arrogant kind of way of being able to walk into any space. And I think I can do something with the space and make it, turn it into some form of theatrical magic. It's possible. The book cover space itself is a piece of theater because it leads you into the book. It attracts you, you know. There's things happening there. It's not competitive with the author's intent. On the contrary, like lighting is not supposed to compete with the directorial intent. You know, you're, you're, you're Zakir Hussain, who's capable of a solo, but you have to subdue that image in the nicest possible way to Hari Prasad Charasya. You're an accomplished. So, you know, all of these things um, come into it. But yeah, she's the one. And her role as a translator, you mentioned a lot of translators, and you really need to read some of her Mahashwatas or her Navarun Bhattacharya. You know, I mean, it's absolutely wonderful uh, way with um, being able to, you know, language in a certain kind. 
somehow every response uh, you take it back and connect it to theater <laughs> including your cover design <laughs> that's no, beautiful that's <laughs> <laughs> okay. now uh, when it comes to visibility of books making it uh, reach the reader what is uh, siegel's approach siegel's approach has been over the last 42 years and remains exploratory you never rest it's never satisfactory enough um, because many things you know if you remember when um, or you may have heard about this you may not remember it which is that when we started you were distribution within the indian context we found that uh, of course traditionally everybody wants to exclusively distribute you but we discovered very soon in the indian context that no single distributor knew this vast many indias so we started for example with those days the orient longman which was orient black swan now and we found that they did a certain kind of good job in let us say the maharashtra end but were not so good in the north right they did well in the bengal so we discovered very soon by exploratory methods that we need to have four distributors in different regions so we went through that it still wasn't satisfactory then you found the distributors and a growing retail it was very hard for these distributors to read retail what they had between them were lots of sub wholesalers you know but through all of this in those days we used to depend a lot on what we used to call direct mailing and postcards and let and we found small town india was reading and reaching out to you you know with somebody sitting in some small town wanting um, you know a rur gopalakrishna thing and prayer script by so and so and jabar patel and they would send you a postcard and you said oh my god how did it even get there sub 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 wholesalers you know that kind of thing but the effort has to be now if you jump to all the resources at your command whether it's social media or whether it's mailing in a certain way lots of direct selling is something we've discovered be you to help the distributors efforts within the indian context in the beginning you have to realize that there's a huge the way distribution works is that uh there are a few very few wholesalers who distribute for the big houses so whether it's penguin or bloomsbury or hypercar they would all go through a particular wholesaler who then creates a hierarchy of who's doing what and who brings in what kind of income for them so there's a you know it's not easy in the western world where we discovered that we are distributing when i say through university of chicago press what do they do they warehouse they promote they represent there has a more structured thing india discovered structures of distribution when the multinationals came in and started all these houses before that you and i used to get our books ready and then go and look for buyers literally you know the process at the chicago level also taught us that you start a year in advance you get the translated manuscript you announce it a year in advance and all the systems there are geared libraries institutions booksellers orders so if you delay a book there's a backlog of cancellations because they want it on a certain date so there's a lot of that but the small independent publisher to come to that in a focused way 
has to constantly do promotional activity to help this chain. You have to engage with booksellers all over. You have to, con because no bookseller has the luxury in today's technological world of stocking your entire list. Shelf space is at, at a premium. Forget the chains, I'm talking the independent, wonderful independent bookstores. Because you know you're three clicks away, right? So if Naveen's published 20 books, you may keep the last three on the shelf, but you know you can get 17 from Speaking Tiger. You know, it's question. So people are keeping the new, the new, the new replaces the almost immediate, which, you know, gets shifted back and so on and so forth because it's at a premium. So promotion constantly, uh, people are doing, whether you're big or small, you're, you're, you're doing events, you're doing discussions. The space has shrunk forward, writing and talking about books. What you're doing is unique. You're talking about books here, right? But how many people are doing that? They're doing it on Instagram, they're doing it on Twitter, and they, you know. But the newspapers and print that we grew up with, where we believed the written review, whether it was a drama critic, film critic, or a book critic, there, there was a kind of love-hate thing, you know. If they loved you, you loved them back, and if they hated you, you were upset. But now it's shrunk between the Hindu and the front line, and just a few people doing this. But um, so it's not an easy thing. No one has the answers. Everybody is trying their best. And you, you see, if you, and we do 50 books a year, for example. And so therefore, you have to give attention to each of those. Sometimes, and visibility is the most important thing. I don't even worry about sales. I keep telling my distributors, make the book visible. Because then there's choice of you and me as a book buyer. But if we don't have visibility, and for us, we've been through the whole good, bad, ugly of visibility and invisibility. And, you know, we've had everything. We've had great years where you've been awarded all kinds of wonderful things, where you've had a lot of attention. You've been picked up by the NYRB and LRB and, you know, reviewed. And, but you never know. Because you're doing the same for every book. But you don't know who is going to pick up what which trigger is going to make a book visible in the New York reviews or you know, I'm talking the American context, you know. So I think all of this is a constant endeavor. You owe it to the authors to keep at it, right? And therefore, it's pointless responding in frustration or annoyance to authors. Some authors are more connected in the social media world and appear to be pushy but the point is it is their life's output at that moment it is the most important thing for them you have to recognize and therefore you have to provide that you know it's a kind of together thing it's not us and them here it's some do it better than others and the the trick is to you know sort of um over, I think, the last 10, 12 years, we've discovered slowly, and particularly during the pandemic, the power of reaching you directly. In other words, it's fine to have your internet sales, at, you know, three clicks away, Amazon, and all the rest of it. It's, 
but it's also about a certain word of mouth and it's that is generated by your being able to build a list of people that buy from you reach out to them constantly uh, we keep doing you know because selling from your website is also very important selling through bookstores is also very important what is also even far more interesting which we are noticing still because now computerized records of sales and location are possible that we sell the more serious interesting you know translated european literature outside the metros there's a lot of books that get there you know with we have these wonderful little distributors in that see so you have we have a situation post pandemic where we have penguin panvik miller and a wonderful company called atlantic publishers and distributors in delhi atlantic has a vast network of over 200 sub wholesalers booksellers everywhere in the country and they just give it to them on credit penguin and panvik are more retail oriented more metro oriented kind of stuff and i find if you look and analyze the kind of books being bought in quote unquote in pankaj mishra's terms from his wonderful butter chicken in ludhiana small town india you know i mean nothing is small town in india you know the population but you know what i mean so if people in ludhiana and patna are reading something about a bavarian widow because it rings a chord in their head that's to me that success the other interesting thing which is an admirable thing is the pricing of your books um, all are within 600 700 rupees uh, comes down to about 8 dollars or even less that is amazing for the kind of quality of printing that you have in your books i have about 10 titles with me from seagal now so how do you manage to do that it's really pure intent uh, there's no logic of a mathematical kind you have a notional idea that if you can you know sell enough in a dollar economy you should be able to subsidize it here but in real terms it doesn't quite work out like that you're also recognizing the fact that within the indian cultural book buying culture context there's just so much you and i are willing to spend on a book right because you're within this is your community this is your structure superstructure whatever you want to call it and therefore you can't suddenly uh price them uh, in a way that it competes at par with that say the american pricing or the british pricing and so on and so forth so we do notionally subsidize a book sells for $7 because it sells $27 somewhere else but in practice it's very hard to keep tabs of that sometimes within the indian context you sell enough numbers to justify that very small margin that you keep right um so if i was to treat each book as a profit center this would fall flat it, it just wouldn't work because it's always a handful of books that do gloriously well and therefore you're also subsidizing 10 other books that need to be done that may not do well at the moment of their birth but 5 years later 
they're still in circulation. That's what's important. But you're, I think you're the first one who's told me that our pricing is very reasonable. No one, everybody says, oh, give us a discount. No, you have to compare it with the right ones, with the same quality of printing and content. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But we don't want to sacrifice quality. You know, uh, it's very important right. that the right. texture yes, of paper, yes. fabric, yes. binding, you know, all of that. And so that's important. No, that's the reason uh, as a reader, I invest in hot copy, right? That is the sole reason, just mm -hmm. to have the feel of it. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to translations, I think uh, there are about 25, from 25 different languages, uh, you have your catalog is about 25 different languages. There are translations into English, right? I haven't really counted. I think approximately. Maybe it's a little less, yeah. but yeah. But uh, when you see the regional Indian languages, I would say, not regional languages, Indian languages, uh, there are very few, I think two or three, if I count it. I think Bengali, Hindi, and. But largely Bengali. Bengali. Yeah. Urdu because also, I guess, that's right? right. So, what is the reason? I'll tell you, we've actually, when we started here, we were doing basically translating theatre scripts from different Indian languages, right? So you had, of course, you had Marathi, which was very strong, and you had Malayalam, and you had Tamil, and you had uh, Hindi and Bengali. And, but then there came this insistence that we would build an international list, which we did, and then we neglected, while we were doing that for 10 years, we were guilty of neglecting the, what we call the India list. And then we came back to it when we were confident that now there is interest in things that we are publishing with the Indian context outside. Then we discovered that there were such wonderful publishers already doing translations from all sorts of Indian languages. The bigger ones are doing a lot of that. So we chose to stick to the languages that we were familiar with. So Bengali became automatic. Also relationships. Our relationships with Mahashwata Devi and Namurun Bhattacharya and handling their legacy and estate for the son and grandson uh, keeps, and there's lots of the, keeps us at that level. Uh, so we've, so it became accidentally that and now a lot of the Hindi. It isn't a deliberate choice except for the Bangla. What would be interesting is if, say, for example, you were to bring a particular, you know, if you bring a Telugu book to me, which makes sense to you, and you take the responsibility and say, Naveen, I want to build a Telugu list for you. I'd say, do it. Because I can't, right? So, so it's literally like that. So the only list that I was responsible for French and German in a strange way, but the Italian has a series editor, the Arab has a series editor. People who came into our lives and asked the same question you did, what about this and what about that? We haven't done the Latin American enough because nobody came into the, nobody, so we've done some Borges and stuff. So a lot of it is a kind of accidental, you know, the Slovak list happened in the same way and now we're looking at Latvia and we're looking at, you know, Czech and so on and so forth, because somebody at some point like you will find a connect and say, I'm taking the responsibility, which only means locating a curatorial detective work of finding interesting things, not to physically edit. Um, the other thing is that translation is a very expensive project, right? In the sense that the gestation period is longer. You're 
continuing to pay translations, then you get it out, then it sells, then it brings in some kind of money. Uh, and the support structures for translations within this country is also something that needs to be strengthened. Interestingly, I'm also noticing that the languages within the domestic situation, people are translating each other's, right? Certain kinds of books. Um, and uh, we're also now discovering that some of our books, for example, the Romila Thapar, one or two books that we are happening in multiple Indian languages. Mahashwata has always happened in multiple English language, uh, Indian languages. Um, my own poetry has happened in seven, eight languages, including in Urdu, in Pakistan, and so on and so forth. So there is a lot of scope for that, but it doesn't translate into large sums for anybody. Because like you talked about pricing being reasonable, the languages expect even more reasonable pricing in a certain way, right? Uh, the, the, the language publishers are still trying to keep a kind of, you know, they don't match the English language pricing. It's become much. So it's a kind of complicated thing. We would love to see other languages make, up, make their way to us. Uh, but if it happens organically, yeah, it's not like a strategy that we have to do 10 books of this or 10 books of that. Sometimes you find in a particular season you've done seven of a certain language and only two of another language. Some of it has to do with the ecosystem of when you set the translation into motion, when it comes home. There was a big backlog during the pandemic. You missed seasons. And suddenly you had lots of books, but you have to phase them out. No. You were involved with the art, literature and theatre for the last five decades or so. The current socio-political scenario that is prevailing in the country and across the world, how do you think literary ecosystem, writers, publishers can respond to that? This is my last question. Well, they're responding all the time. A certain kind of writer uh, is choosing to go with the political dispensation of the time and becoming part of that ecosystem. And then there are others, you know, something interesting uh, that I've, you know, often talked about, which is that in our current climate, you can have a situation where a certain sized publisher has the capability of what I call pushing back because of their sheer size and their contribution to the exchequer. But these publishers are very wary and therefore a new editorial intervention is happening, which is called a legal edit. I'm no longer sending you a manuscript that is only copy edit, which is the term we grew up with, but you have a legal edit for every book where the author justifies, have you covered this track? If you said this, where is the proof? Did you hear a speech? Where is the link to that YouTube speech? You know this. So censorship of the self, not quite, but something close to that is beginning to happen. You're preempting. It's like constantly living in anxiety of being attacked in a certain kind of way. So you can choose to therefore do that kind of publishing. 
or you can choose to do a kind of publishing where you focus on what you wish to do. You don't have to scream from the rooftops, but you just keep on doing it. You do what is essential to do. You stay with your authors. You do not have, like us, we don't have clauses in our contract which says responsibility, libel, legal is all yours and not ours. No, you're together. Once I've accepted your book, I'm fighting your battles with you. So therefore, you keep doing it till you're physically stopped. That's the anxiety now. In today's world climate, you can be stopped at any time from doing whatever you do. So there's a certain, you know, if you are a romantic, you will say there is a certain creativity in this resistance. But to me, it's just negative energy worrying about something which will happen when it will happen, then you face it, then you respond to it. I know it's slightly foolhardy not to be prepared, but even sitting in, let's be specific, if you're sitting in New Delhi and you're being speaking tiger, you're publishing what you wish to publish. You're not going around mincing words or censoring, but this is not true of maybe some of the larger ones who feel they have more to lose, right? So it's a, you can't blame anybody for this. That's the other thing. Because you don't know the compulsions of a big house or a small house. or It's all, it's in the art world too. You, you can't just, you know, pick up the phone and scream at some artist because you feel that they have done something that has been involved with the governmental something or the other that you disagree with. Because everybody has compulsions. And we cannot sit on a high moral ground and say, do this, do that. You can only choose your own moral ground. So you have to, if you are the kind you wish to stand up and do what you wish to do, then you should do it. But you, you cannot point fingers, blame others, all of that. You can discuss it amongst yourselves. You can get upset. It's human to get upset with, oh, I wish they wouldn't do this. I would. But, you know, and it's not just the Indian context. I'm talking here anywhere and everywhere in the world. See what has happened post 7th October. Right. Lots of cultures that I work with now, this time in Frankfurt, we were all under a shadow. I had promised scroll I would do a kind of Frankfurt diary and it, I did something, but it became, you know, a kind of darker trajectory than a happy celebratory thing of books. So it's, it's, a, it's a difficult time. But there have been other difficult times. I call it, you know, because of a photography project, I, did, I like to use the word cannibal time. In my head, there's a hierarchy with Hannah Arendt's dark times having lost its edge and we need something else. So I use the word cannibal time, which may not be perfect, but it is that, you know, it's eroding away. And therefore, you need very much to resist it in your own way. We have, you know, we have one or two authors who are resisting the business of books. 
they don't want to be part of the business of books. So they're continuing to write. There's one man who continues to write. But as he says, I write for my drawer. I don't want to be published because I don't like the business of books and he has reasons for it. So but it's all part of the way, you know, our lives are. Somebody will one day look back and, you know, find meaning. That's not your and my task. We can only sit here and explore our own thoughts and how much they affect others. Coming back to this business of building an intellectual climate, how I wish that was possible. There's not enough discussion happening amongst ourselves, even as publishers. There is a kind of sense of community as and when you have open access to people. But on the whole, it seems fairly lonely business. Each one is doing their own thing, mostly. I don't mean to end on a pessimistic note, because I really enjoy this business of the books, of the way we do them, and a lot of others in, like us who carry on doing it, which is why it works. It's like the country. The country works because there's enough like-minded people doing things. And doing is important. You cannot stop the doing because it's always that. People want you to stop doing, become, you know, raise your hands up skywards and constantly look like supplicants wanting your elected representatives to drop little things into your palms. But that's not how it is meant to be. You have to be responsible for making this ecosystem you have to find ways of doing the books that you wish to do. The world, the reader, nobody wants to know how you do it. So don't beat your chest about that. Do it. That's it. Get those books into the hands of the readers. No, it's important. Wonderful. See, the best part uh, about your responses is that uh, though they're impromptu responses, because I changed all the questions that I have sent you. I felt like uh, I was listening to an audio of a book. Thank you. With beautiful structured prose. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>